nor the fact that today is the day after Christmas. Uh, some of you guys have uh, a glaze over your eyes from eating too much glaze, uh, whether it's glazed donuts, uh, too much honey glazed ham, whatever it might be, uh, too many Christmas cookies. Uh, many of you guys exchanged gifts yesterday, went to family's house, uh, have, had a wonderful time uh, with family. Uh, some of you guys got gifts, received gifts. Uh, I got some notes from wives uh, for husbands in the room. Uh, your wife wasn't the biggest fan of your gift, so she will be returning it in the next few days. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but around this time of year, we also get gifts, uh, many big gifts, ping pong tables, doll houses for little girls, whatever it might be. Uh, and on, a, on the side of those boxes, there's either uh, written uh, on the box or the sticker that says, Assembly Required. Uh, assembly Required, which are two of my least favorite words uh, with any Christmas gifts, next to uh, batteries not included. Um, and uh, you're either going to spend either last night or today or next weekend uh, assembling said gifts for your spouse or for your kids. Uh, so uh, you'll probably be uh, alone, uh, hot, angry, eating stale Christmas cookies, uh, assembling a ping pong table or a new Ikea uh, bookshelf, whatever it may be, over the next few weeks, uh, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but I think it's safe to say that I can divide this room uh, of people into two categories. Uh, there are the instruction manual readers, and there are the instruction manual non-readers. Uh, and generally, they're married to each other. Uh, uh, I myself am one in that first category. I, I, I don't love reading instruction manuals, but I read instruction manuals, I take inventory, I lay everything out. I make sure there's a good piece of, of like cardboard on the ground so I don't scratch up our floor or scratch up the stuff. Uh, and then I follow it to a T uh, and make sure I'm doing it right. Meanwhile, uh, my, my God-given beautiful wife, uh, who I'm extremely thankful for, uh, God's grace in my life, she, she takes what we would call creative license uh, with the assembly, where she looks at the finished product on the box and she just says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wing it and do that. Uh, somehow we end up with like three extra screws uh, and the screwdriver got lost in one of the drawers, uh, and, and uh, yeah, we're both angry, and I'm not sure how it stays up, or if it is going to stay up, uh, whether it's an Ikea thing, or whatever it might be, TV stand, uh, dollhouse. So, uh, thankfully, uh, it's not that way for our spiritual life. It's not that way for our spiritual life. Uh, we have been given a, a sort of instruction manual, a sort of uh, instruction booklet, by the creator, the sustainer, the king of the universe. Uh, and it's his self-revealing, uh, self-revelation to us called scripture. Uh, but thankfully, thanks be to God, that this is not uh, just a, a checklist like we would have a, uh, an instruction manual of do this, don't do this. Here's step one, step two, step three, step four, and then you're perfect. Uh, and and I, I'm thankful that it's not that because if the Bible was just a checklist of here's 10 things you do and here's 10 things you don't do and that's it, and if you do that, you're good and you're in good standing, I think all of the rule followers in the room, uh, all of those instruction manual readers in the room, uh, would be filled with arrogance and pride uh, and self-righteousness. And all of the uh, non-rule followers, the, all of the uh, non-instruction manual readers would just be filled with uh, doubt and a sense of lostness and hopelessness and bitterness. But God has given us his scripture, which is a story. Uh, it's a collection uh, of books, 66 books, written over uh, 1,500 years by 40 different human authors in three languages on three continents. Uh, and it all instructs us and points us 
to a glorious and powerful God who speaks and it comes to pass. A good and faithful God who makes promises and keeps promises. And a merciful and gracious God who saves and keeps his people. So today, uh, we are talking about the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that is the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And we are going to have a big idea. Each week in kids' worship, we give the kids a big idea. So if you have one thing you take away, our big idea is that we have a God-centered view of the Bible. We have a God-centered view of the Bible. And what we mean when we say that is that just like with the sun at the center of our solar system, all of the planets and moons revolve around it. Gravity pulls us toward it. Uh, the same is true for our, sen our sense of the Bible, our view of the Bible. God is the center of it. It all revolves around him. It all focuses on him, and we are pulled towards him by our reading of it. Nothing else and no one else can be at the center of the Bible. So we are going to look at our God-centered view of the Bible, its origin, uh, our God-centered view of its story, our God-centered view of its reading and understanding and application of the Bible. Uh, and you can start flipping to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, in your Bibles, or turn on your Bibles and your iPads or phones, wherever you look at it. We'll have it on the screens. Uh, but before we get there, uh, I'm going to give us four reasons for why it's important for us as Christians, as First Pointing, to have a high God-centered view of Scripture. Why, four reasons it's important. We can think of many more, uh, but I got four for you. So, reason number one uh, for why we have a God-centered high view of the Bible. Because what we think about the Bible how we use it, how we interact with it, shows how we think about God or what we think about God. In other words, if we have a high uh, view of the Bible, its commands, its rules, its laws, its story, it shows that we have a high view of God. And if we have a low view of the Bible, we have a low view of God. Secondly, uh, because so often we see Christians and churches uh, talk about the Bible, read the Bible, understand it and apply the Bible— uh, in a way where they're saying they're using the Bible, but they're not keeping God as the focus or the center of it. They're taking God out of focus and putting man or the things of man at the center, uh, whether it's something political, uh, societal, popular, self-help, whatever it may be, uh, God is not the center. Uh, and that's just unacceptable. Uh, that's why I asked that our elder reading for today's scripture could be from Psalm 119, which, uh, not that this qualifies as... Uh, uh, I'll stop there. Uh, the, the longest uh, chapter in the longest book of the Bible uh, is not about us. The longest chapter in the longest book of the Bible is all about the beauty of God's Word and our desire to read, understand, and apply it. The longest chapter, Psalm 119, in the longest book of the Bible is all about the beauty of God's Word and our desire to read it, love it, apply it, pray it, to the glory of God. It's not about us. Uh, so reason number two, reason number three, uh, three uh, because the authority, the truthfulness, the goodness of God's word has been called into question since the very beginning. Ever since the serpent said in the garden, did God really say that? The authority, the truthfulness, and the goodness of God's word has been called into question. And God's word has also been mis misinterpreted and misapplied since the garden when Eve added to God's word, not even touching the fruit or eating it. So God's word has been misinterpreted, 
uh, and its authority, truthfulness, and goodness have been questioned since the very beginning. And fourthly, uh, this is our last Sunday before the New Year's, and if I can charge you or challenge you or encourage you in any way to start a Bible reading plan this next year, uh, it will be for your own good and your own benefit, and I would love to uh, encourage you in that. And we'll talk more about that later in service, but if we don't get to it, uh, there is some Bible reading plans in the table outside the worship center. So those are our four reasons. There's many more uh, of why we need a God-centered, high view of the Bible. Uh, so we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, and to give you a little bit of context, this is Paul's uh, last letter of the New Testament. This is the last one he wrote before being executed under Emperor Nero uh, of Rome. Uh, he wrote it as one of the pastoral epistles, uh, First, Second Timothy and Titus, uh, which are written to elders or leaders of the church. Uh, and he wrote it to this guy named Timothy. Uh, giving you some context on Timothy, Timothy was a half-Jewish man uh, from Lystra. He came to follow Christ and then was a close follower of Paul for a few years, went on some missionary journeys with Paul, and then later became an elder in the church of Ephesus, which is where he is currently in, in this book. Uh, and we'll, we can talk about uh, Ephesus a bit more in the next weeks, but... Uh, but it was essentially a city that was uh, overturned by the gospel uh, for God's glory. They had an idol industry that just got turned on its head when the gospel got in, in touch with that city. But to give you more background on Timothy, uh, he was spiritually raised by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice uh, with a Greek unbelieving father. Sometimes we can think that the heroes of the New Testament, the heroes of Scripture, were these special leaders with extra charismatic gifts or uh, extra charismatic leadership ability or extra strategic leadership ability. Uh, but Timothy was a regular guy. Uh, he needed encouragement. He needed challenging. He needed reminding from Paul. He needed uh, regular instructions to grab Paul's jacket and books from Troas in, in 2 Timothy 4. Uh, he needed instructions on mixing a little bit of wine with water to help his frequent tummy aches. Uh, he's not unlike a lot of modern men who need extremely specific instructions from their wives on which aisle to go down uh, and where to get it in the grocery store so they can get the exact groceries that their, their wife wants, uh, who also are stubborn and need reminders from their wives to take aspirin when they have a headache. Uh, so Timothy was a pretty regular guy like, uh, like us, uh, and like we said, he was an elder in the church of Ephesus. But in Paul's letter to Timothy, chapters 3 and 4 are essentially a warning of the future, of what's to come. And it sandwiched in those warnings uh, is a beautiful passage about Scripture and the importance of Scripture. Uh, but chapters 3 and 4 uh, boil down to three things happening in that end times, that future. Uh, firstly, regular and widespread self-centeredness, sinful breaking of God's commands and laws. Secondly, uh, hypocritical religious people and religious leaders wanting to appear godly but denying God's power, and as a result, tearing families apart. And thirdly, uh, people not wanting to hear the truth or be called to repentance for their sins, and therefore are finding teachers and leaders to tell them what they want to hear. Uh, the Bible uses tickling their ears. I, I won't spend much time on that, but if that doesn't sound like our day and age, I don't know what does. Uh, the regular and widespread self-centeredness and self-obsession, uh, the hypocritical religious people and religious leaders, and uh, not wanting to hear the truth and be called to repentance. But we come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read 10 through 17, and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, so 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, 
have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. So verse 10 and 11, Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. What Paul's saying here is that Timothy has been a witness to and a recipient of how Paul has communicated and trained in sound doctrine, sound teaching, sound instruction, and sound theology. How Paul has communicated the truth about God and his gospel. But it doesn't just end there. Timothy has also been a witness to Paul's life. How he's seen how Paul has lived out this teaching practically. He's seen how Paul has dealt with loss, he's dealt with betrayal, and he's dealt with persecution. He's seen Paul in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he's seen how everything that Paul has taught and lived Every difficult person, every difficult situation that he has dealt with has all been centered on the same thing. You see, the center of Paul's life was three things. The glorification of Christ, serving his bride, the church, and the advancement of the gospel message. The center of Paul's life was the glorification of Christ, serving his bride, the church, and the advancement of the gospel message. That's why Paul could say things like he did in Philippians, to live as Christ and to die is gain, because that was his life. This is an, an application for us, is like elsewhere, uh, this reminds us that sound doctrine, sound teaching, sound theology leads to sound living. Uh, if you ever find yourself divorcing what you believe about God, your theology, from how you're living your life, you're doing it wrong. What we believe about God, what he says about humanity, creation, sin, the world— shapes how we live. It shapes our thoughts, shapes our words, shapes our actions. That's how Paul can say things, in, like in Titus 2.7, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Paul then ta talks a little bit about some of his persecution, some of his roadblocks, some of his difficulty. He even throws some shade at uh, Timothy's hometown, Lystra, uh, but he continues it in verses 12 and 13 when he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. A first point of observation for us here is that those who are seeking to live a godly life are those who are in Christ Jesus. Often in our world, we'll see people who are seeking to live a, a godly life, but they don't want to do it by God's rules and God's standards, and they definitely don't want to do it with Christ Jesus. Because that would mean they would have to submit to him as king of their life. But those who are in Christ Jesus are those who are seeking to live a godly life by God's rules and standards. 
Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, uh, those who are called justified, or those who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and will one day be glorified are those who are being conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, being made like Christ in word and thought and deed. Second observation is that uh, th- this, this seems like a, a promise of persecution and difficulty, which is a bit of a downer the day after Christmas. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to say that. But it's a reminder that points us back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He ends his blessings and beatitudes with this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A third reminder of this is that we need to remember, just like Paul said in verse 11, uh, any persecution that you or I don't face, or that we do face and endure through, is only by God's grace, deliverance, and rescue. Any persecution or difficulty that you or I don't face, or that we do face and make it through, is by God's grace, deliverance, and rescue. Now, now you and I might not face persecution and tribulation right now for our faith, uh, unlike many believers across the world who are facing it deeply and severely right now, and especially around Easter time. But this is a promise that we will if we continue to seek a godly, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And with that promise comes an even greater promise. That yes, we will have tribulation and trouble in this world, but Christ has overcome this world. And yes, we will face difficulty, but any difficulty we face, any persecution we face, is for God's glory and for our good. So we need to have a theology or a doctrine of suffering and persecution that lines up with Scripture and lines up with the world around us. Uh, We don't need to see everything around us as persecution or difficulty. Chick-fil-A being closed on Sundays when you're especially in the mood for it is not persecution. Uh, Being called a weirdo sometimes uh, is not persecution, especially if you're like me, you're already a weirdo. Uh, You just add Christianity on top of that. the author of Hebrews gives us a, a better understanding of what this might look like when he says, uh, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in the Bible talks about beatings, stonings, Paul even talks about uh, being given to a lion's mouth, which could be a a real lion or a figurative lion uh, talking about execution. But whatever persecution or suffering we may face, it should point to two things. It should all point to Christ, his suffering, his persecution, his beating, his, his death on the cross, and it should push us to further rely on God's provision and grace. It should point to Christ, his suffering, his persecution, and it push us to further rely on God, his provision, and his grace. In other words, we need a God-centered view of suffering. We need a God-centered view of suffering. Uh, Paul continues in verse 13, and this is just a reminder of the direction that our world is going. Uh, it's a spiral downward of self-deception, sort of like a toilet bowl swirling. Uh, he, he sort of talks about deceiving and being deceived, and one author basically summarizes this section by saying, error feeds on itself. Error feeds on itself. Uh, and he continues to talk about unhealthy self-love, unhealthy self-obsession in earlier in chapter 3 and later in chapter 4. Uh, 
which is really just one putting ourselves at the center of our life, on the throne of our hearts, and declaring that we are the final authority, not God, which in reality is what all of us have done before the gospel gets a hold of our hearts and transforms our lives. Verse 14 uh, says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. One thing to point out is continuing what we firmly believed uh, necessitates that we firmly believe first. We can't continue in something that we haven't started. We can't continue in a Christian walk that we haven't begun yet. If you haven't taken the first step of repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can't continue in that walk. So that's the first point that we need to see. Uh, Next, we have to ask the question, from whom did Timothy learn? He says, from whom you learned. Uh, Paul's probably thinking of his sincere and faithful grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, and Paul's probably thinking of himself, Timothy being one of his close followers, and he calls Timothy his spiritual son in the letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, So it can be helpful for us to remember from whom we've learned, uh, to remember the parents, Sunday school teachers, pastors, elders, mentors that have helped teach us and guide us by the power of the Spirit of God according to the Word of God to the glory of God. Not so that we can look back and say, wow, that was a really cool guy, and he was a sharp dresser. He was a strategic leader. Uh, No, but we can look back and say, what a good and gracious God who put these great people in my life to chisel away my rough edges for his glory. I myself can, can just easily think back to my fifth grade Sunday school teacher, Mr. Sewell, or different pastors or leaders or mentors in my life like Mark, Dan, Leroy, Robbie, Aaron, Derek, George, Mark, Peggy, Bernie, and many more, including some of the elders of this church. I would recommend that you t- do that either today or tomorrow. Take some time to look back at your life and think about all the people that God has placed in your life to chisel away some of those rough, edge- rough edges for his glory. Paul continues to say, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. The interesting thing about that word there is childhood is the same word for infancy. It's even used in the Gospel of Luke to describe John the Baptist as a pre-born human fetal being leaping in Elizabeth's womb when Mary comes by. This is a reminder that we can begin to read Scripture, pray Scripture, and sing Scripture over our children before they're even born. We can begin to spiritually feed our children as soon as we can begin to physically feed them. Maybe that's just the kids pastor in me, but I think that is a beautiful and touching reminder. And Timothy likely went on, like most Jewish boys, uh, to begin memorizing the Old Testament at the age of five. By the age of ten, he most likely had the entire Torah memorized. I know our Awana does great, uh, great scripture memory, but I don't think they have the kids by the age of 10 memorizing the entire first five books of the Bible. They, they don't, Cherry? No, no. I mean, uh, they, they, they took scripture memory seriously in these times. Uh, and, and this is just a reminder for us that we need to have Bible-saturated households and a Bible-saturated church. And when I say Bible-saturated, I mean filled to the brim and overflowing with scripture, a love of scripture, reading scripture, memorizing scripture. Uh, as, as God says in the book of Numbers when he's talking to the people about uh, quail, he says, he says, coming out of your nostrils. We need to have scripture coming out of our nostrils. Uh, we, need, we need to be reading scripture, listening to scripture, praying scripture, and even singing scripture. Uh, in, in preparing for this, I wanted to look up some resources for parents of young children in the room uh, 
for ways that they could sing scripture. And there's a few resources on the internet you can find. Uh, some that I could find uh, for parents of young children were uh, Risers, R-I-Z-E-R-S. Uh, it's short for Memorizers. Uh, and they literally just sing scripture uh, with upbeat cartoons, animals, whatever they might use. It's pretty fun. That's pretty cool. Uh, Lucy likes it. Uh, there's also Seeds Family Worship, uh, which is uh, scripture memory. It's just... Uh, Scripture put to music with motions as well uh, And then there's also Fighterverse, which is an app put out by this organization called truth 78 uh, They have uh, a weekly scripture memory verse and a song to go along with it as well as other tools to help you memorize that scripture uh, Now, why is it important that we have scripture memory? Uh, why is it important that we have Bible saturated households? Why is it important that we have a Bible saturated church for our kids? Well, Paul says that in the next verse or in the next part of this verse He says it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's essentially, continual exposure to hearing, reading, singing, memorizing Scripture makes us wise for salvation. In other words, the Old Testament Scripture leads us to an understanding of the truth that there is a God who is good and perfect, that we have sinned against that God and we are in need of a Savior and we are deserving of eternal separation from Him. And then the New Testament comes along and says and proclaims that salvation and that that salvation has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But one thing I want to point out is that reading, hearing, studying, memorizing Scripture does not save us and does not save your kids. Reading, hearing, studying, and memorizing Scripture does not save us and does not save your kids. Only faith in Christ Jesus does that. Only faith in his perfect life, his sinless death, his burial, and his resurrection. There is salvation in no one else and no other name under heaven or earth given among men by which, men, by, by which we must be saved, according to Acts 4. Now Paul goes on to describe the origin uh, and the application of Scripture when he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, I'm going to call these our focal verses or our money verses uh, for what we're talking about today. Uh, and I want to take a little bit of time with each of either words or phrases in those two verses because I think it's crucially important for us understanding uh, our God-centered view of the Bible's origin and application. Paul says, all Scripture. All Scripture. Now, this can either mean the whole of Scripture or every part of Scripture. But Paul's not just talking about the Old Testament, though we know he is talking about the Old Testament here. Yes, they did view the Old Testament as God's Word, as Holy Scripture. But in the New Testament, we begin to see that they are, God is preparing His people for further revelation for the New Testament. Jesus Himself says in John 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now, essentially laying the groundwork that more Scripture is to come. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Peter referring to the Apostle Paul's writings in the same category as Scripture. In 2 Peter, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. 
So this is Peter referring to Paul's writing as Scripture. It's also a great reminder that uh, we're not the only ones that find Paul's writings difficult to understand. Uh, it's really encouraging for me, because when I read Romans sometimes, uh, it's pretty hard. We also have the Apostle Paul quoting the Gospel of Luke in 1 Timothy when he says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. We can go on and on, and we can even have seminary classes and Bible studies here to talk about the development of the New Testament canon and God's sovereign grace in that. Uh, but we, uh, we can be confident in knowing that when we read all Scripture here, we are reading about all 66 books of our Old and New Testaments. So All Scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, this is essentially a word that Paul made up. <laughs> uh, it's the word theopneustos. Uh, he, he did that a few times, but he, he just made up this word. Some, some translations have inspired, but it's literally the words uh, theo, God, and neustos, or neo, which is to breathe out. Uh, or the same word we get spirit from. So all scripture is breathed out by God. And this is where we get our word for inspiration. So we believe in the inspiration of scripture. And when we say that, we're, we're, we're not saying that scripture is really inspiring, like, like a really good speech or a really good play like Les Mis or a really good movie. Uh, we're not saying uh, that the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament were writings of men uh, that God was inspired by and then said, oh, that's good stuff, and put his stamp of approval on. But we are saying that God is the origin of his word. It originates with him. Second Peter clarifies this when he says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Bible is produced under God's full, uh, uh, by God under God's full control through human instruments. Every word that God wanted in there is in there and how God wants it to be. So we have a God-centered view of the Bible's origin, where the Bible comes from. Now, I, I've sometimes heard people in times in seminary and times around here uh, where they will say that I, we believe in, or I believe in, the inspiration of Scripture, but I don't believe in things like inerrancy or infallibility. Uh, but to say that is to not really understand what inspiration means. Because uh, if we truly believe that the Bible is inspired by an all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-true, all-good, all-faithful God speaking his words to be written through human authors, we would necessarily believe that the Bible is completely trustworthy and true. So, another point that we can see here is that the inspiration of Scripture, its origin, where it comes from, is the foundation for Scripture's authority and usefulness. Scripture is authoritative and useful in our lives because it is inspired by God. He goes on to say that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. That word profitable can mean helpful, useful, beneficial, valuable. He uses it again in the next chapter to say that bodily training is of some value or profit. Uh, but godliness is of value or profit in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and also the life to come. In other words, your physical health and well-being are important and good, but how much imp more important is your spiritual health? Taking care of your body, taking supplements, vitamins, working out are good and of value, but taking care of your soul is of the utmost value. He says it's profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training. For the kids in the room, we're going to summarize that in four ways. What to believe, what not to believe, how not to act, and how to act. 
positive and negative for each. So uh, positive and negative for what to believe and positive and negative for how to act or how to live. What to believe, what not to believe, how not to act, and how to act. Uh, in more detail, uh, when he says teaching, it means that uh, Scripture is profitable for instructing us in doctrine, teaching us what we ought to believe about God, what he says about the world around us. Reproof means uh, correcting or disproving our false mindsets, refuting our wrong thinking, and convicting us of our wrong beliefs about God and what he says about the world around us. Correction is actually a really fun word. Uh, the, the word for the Greek nerds in there is epinorthosis, which is, if you look at that word in the middle, is where we get ortho, where we get uh, fields like orthodontics or orthopedics from. And it really means uh, setting what is crooked or wrong straight. So if something is on a wrong path, setting it straight. Like orthodontics, you have crooked teeth, setting them straight. Orthopedics, uh, setting uh, parts of the body correct or straight again. Uh, and so what he's saying is Scripture is useful for where we are living off the path or on a crooked path. Scripture straightens us up and sets us on the right path. And lastly, training. Uh, means training, training us up, nurturing us, building our spiritual muscles. Uh, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, for the moment, all discipline, or, or training is the same word there, seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by that, trained by it. If the physical, bodily weight training involves healthy habits of repetition, rest, withholding yourself from indulgences like Ben and Jerry's, coaching from an outside perspective, and correction of your form in order to get the right results to build muscles, what do you think spiritual training and righteousness involves? I'm going to say the same things. Healthy habits of repetition, rest, withholding ourselves from indulgences, coaching from an outside perspective, and correction. And we're not saying this is training to be done begrudgingly or in the flesh, but this is a training to be done out of a desire to be conformed to the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the word of the Lord, to the glory of God. So, Scripture is useful or helpful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. Once again, what to believe, what not to believe, how to act, or how not to act, and how to act. That the man of God may be completely equipped. When he says man of God here, it's, it's a common Old Testament phrase describing prophets or messengers from God, like Elisha or Elijah, uh, who would go and declare God's message to the people. But uh, we can either apply it to uh, leaders of the church, which is true, but also all of us as disciples of Christ who are called by God to declare God's message, the gospel of his son's life, death, and resurrection. Uh, may be completely equipped. Uh, this means super equipped, uh, redundantly equipped, uber equipped, perfectly thoroughly furnished, uh, and able to meet the demands and expectations put on us. Essentially, God's scripture is sufficient to train us to do what God expects of us. It's sufficient to tell us and to train us what God expects of us and so that we can grow spiritually strong. Uh, this is why Jesus quotes in the book of Deuteronomy, or he quotes the book of Deuteronomy when he's speaking to the Satan in the desert. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So scripture is our bread. It is our sustenance that equips us. Just like milk equips an infant to grow healthy and strong, scripture is what equips the believer to grow spiritually strong. And it equips us for good works. For good works. Uh, this is a phrase that's repeated throughout the New, uh, New Testament, but I also want to leave it open for you as well. Uh, he, Paul uses this in Ephesians 2 to say, this is what we were created in Christ to do. He uses it in Romans 9 to say, this is what we are called by God to do. Uh, 
Uh, he uses it in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says uh, we can only do good works by God's sufficient grace. And he uses it in Titus chapter 3 to show that we do good works to show that we are under God's authority, God's ultimate authority, and under submission to earthly authorities. So how do we know what a good work is, or how do we know what good works are for us? Uh, by reading and understanding God's all-sufficient, authoritative, God-centered scripture. So we have a God-centered view of our application, how we apply God's words, and how we obey it. Now, I want to end with four quick uh, applications of scripture from this passage or from elsewhere. Uh, and they all have the word at the end of them, so if you uh, have a hard time memorizing. Firstly is, hear the word. Hear the word. The book of James commands, be doers of the word, not only hearers. What he's commanding is to be doers, but what he's assuming is that you're hearing the word. He's presupposing that you're hearing the word. So in order to delight in and apply and obey God's word, we need to first be reading and hearing God's word regularly. So if you don't have a Bible reading plan, uh, now's a great time to start one. We have these outside in the lobby. Essentially, it's through the Bible, and the great part about these plans, if you're like me, uh, is they have 25 days of reading per month. So you have about five catch-up days per month uh, for if you get off the plan like myself. Yeah, you got five days to catch up on it for the rest of the month for the rest of the month uh, And so this is a great way for us to read through scripture to understand God what he expects of us and what he desires from us We also have uh, Apps and technology that remove excuses for us to not read scripture. I know uh, many friends of mine myself included at sometimes I'm not big on reading uh, so I like to be able to listen to scripture and I know the Bible app has some translations that have a cool little synthesizer and music in the background make it all emotional and epic uh, So really we are we are sort of without excuse when it comes to reading scripture or not reading scripture I should say uh, and if you ever say you like hey, I don't have enough time to read scripture um, Well one we all have 24 hours in the day We all have the same amount of time and two I might encourage you to check out that thing on your iPhone that says screen time that shows you how much time you actually have been spending looking at a screen uh, what apps you've been looking at, because uh, it can be a bit of a spiritual gut check uh, for myself and for others. Uh, so hear the word. Uh, second, submit to the word. And I'm actually going to direct this to the fathers, husbands, uh, single mothers, grandfathers, uh, all primary spiritual leaders in the households. You are the spiritual leaders of your homes. You are the spiritual representatives of your homes, and you have a spiritual responsibility in your homes. You need to be modeling and setting an example and taking a first step in memorizing, reading, and applying God's word in your life. Your kids will not learn from you if they do not see you do it. They need to see you, a grown man or grown woman, 100 pounds heavier than them, be brought low by the word of God. They need to see you be taught, reproofed, corrected, and trained by God's word. They need to see you be a leader and a model in repenting when you are wrong and in sin. They need to see you as a leader and a model in respecting authority, starting with God's word and then earthly authorities. If your kids never see you repent, ever, or never have any respect for earthly authorities or the authority of God, what do you think they're going to do when they are confronted by you or by another in wrongdoing and sin? And I'm not just preaching this to you, I'm also preaching this to myself as well. So we need to submit to the word. Hear the word, submit to the word. Thirdly, wield the word. Uh, the Bible is often described as the sword of the spirit, uh, or in the Greek, a, a knife or a dagger that needs to be handled with precision. It's our one offensive weapon in our spiritual defensive arsenal. Uh, in Hebrews, it's described as sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the division of the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow, 
discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is our primary tool in considering the world around us. Uh, sometimes we can think that the Bible is useful and authoritative when we think about areas of theology, heaven and hell, angels, demons, churchy stuff, all that good stuff. But when it comes to areas like parenting, marriage, divorce, gender, sexuality, friendships, work, we go to other sources first. Or worse, we read what Scripture says and we say it doesn't apply to our context. We say it doesn't apply to where we are. What we're doing is we're playing a spiritual gymnastics right there to try and find a way to not apply what God says about our lives to ourselves. Uh, and we are in a spiritual war. We are in a spiritual sword fight. You don't bring gymnastics to a sword fight. That only works for Batman and Robin. The great example for this, of this for us is that Jesus himself, he doesn't say whatever he wants to say. He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Scripture. He quotes the book of Deuteronomy when he is facing the enemy in the desert. So, wield the word. And lastly, preach the word. Uh, I'm just going to take Paul's own application of a God-centered, authoritative word. In 1 Timothy 4, right after he says he equips us for every good work, he says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is a serious charge. And this is a charge we don't take lightly at first point. And this is our hope. Uh, this is what the elders hope for. This is what Pastor David hopes for. We hope to preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, at all times. To reprove, rebuke, exhort. We plan to use scripture to do what it does best. A lot of those are repeated words from the previous chapter. We're going to use Scripture to do what it does best. We're not going to preach topical things. Uh, we're not going to preach the latest celebrity gossip, though that stuff can be fun and interesting. We're not going to preach uh, movies and understanding the gospel through Spider-Man, though that can be interesting and talking about, you know, uh, Spider-Man was bitten by, bitten by a spider, but our Savior was bitten by a snake, and he crushed the head of the serpent. No, we're, we're preaching the Word. Uh, we are using Scripture to do what it is profitable and authoritative to do. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, he compares Scripture, the Word, to a lion. He says sometimes we can think we need to defend a lion, uh, to get our swords and spears out to defend a lion, to make an argument for it. Uh, but the best defense that you can use for a lion is just to let it loose and let it do its thing. Let the lion loose and let it do its thing. So we preach the Word, and we let the inspired, authoritative, God-centered Scripture do what it does best. Pray with me. God, we, we thank you that we can be here today. We thank you that we can read your word, that we can understand your word, that we can apply it to our lives. I pray that we would do that, that we would uh, take you seriously. I pray that the fathers and the husbands and the spiritual leaders in this room would take your word seriously, would set a model and example for their families, would acquaint their children with the holy scriptures so that they might become wise for salvation. I pray that we would take this year as a year to devote to your word, to your goodness, to your gospel message. I pray that everything that we go to say and do and think would be for your glory and your glory alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name.